The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, may the spirit of that song be true in our hearts. May you do a work of grace in us constantly, but particularly today, this morning, because of this passage that we're going to look at. Would you do a work of grace in our hearts that it would be true, we are set aside as worshipers of you, and that you are set aside as first and only in our hearts. We would have no other gods before you, no other gods, period. May that be the case, Father. Would you commission, Lord, your spirit to run amongst us today and to have his way with his word, that it would strike us, that it would pierce into our hearts and work change in us. Holy Spirit, would you rest strongly on this room this morning? That what we talk about and listen to would happen. That you would become, you, Father, Son, and Spirit would become God for us. With no rivals. Fix our fallenness, refine us, change us, grow us. Use your scriptures this morning. And the power of your Spirit, work that in us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What's the difference between these two statements that a mother might make to her child? You were born in August, so I spent the whole summer very pregnant and miserable. And then 27 hours of labor later, you finally came. That's what I went through to bring you into this world. And the least you could do is listen to me when I tell you you can't go to the party. That's the first statement. And the second, you were born in August. I spent the whole summer pregnant and miserable. And 27 hours of labor later, you finally arrived. That's what I've done to bring you into the world. I have invested a lot in your life. I have shown you, have I not, consistently that I love you deeply, giving myself for you, which is why you should listen to me when I tell you you can't go to that party. What's the difference in the two? Same beginning. All that they've gone through, all she's gone through to bring him, bring him into the world. Same end, you can't go to the party. Listen to me, you can't go to the party. The difference is in the middle, how the beginning is used to get to the end. The first one is pure manipulation. Because I've done this, you should do this for me, shouldn't you? Come on, and pull on the emotional strings about how much it hurt and how painful it was. Throw mom a bone, won't you? She suffered. And the second points towards mom's character and makes an argument. I gave you life. I have shown you from the very beginning how much I am for you, giving myself to you in love. Why in the world would I turn around now and try to get you? I don't. 
It's not me. So listen to me when I tell you you can't go to the party. I've got your good as my goal. And I've proven my love to you, haven't I? See the difference there? Based on what the parent has done in the past, not you owe me, but look at the past. See, have I not proven that I'm good, that I'm after your good? There's a big difference there. And the second one is the dynamic that is at work today as we turn to the Ten Commandments. Last week in Deuteronomy 4, verses 32 to 43, Moses revisited two of the, the chief high points in Israel's history. The exodus out of Egypt, and then God's meeting them at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He revisited those things and talked about how in those two events, God had displayed himself in some marvelous ways right before their eyes. That was a key point, right before your eyes. God was deliberately showing himself to them, revealing some things about him in those events for a purpose, to discipline them, the text said. That is to, to shape their hearts, to change them on the inside, that they may lay it to heart that he alone is God. And so, as the text developed, looking back at all of this that God has shown himself to be, and then also looking forward at what that God has promised to bring to pass as blessing, coming at it from these two ends, when today you meet the commandment, trust him and obey him. That was what, is, what was at work last week in the passage. It's basically a microcosm of the book of Deuteronomy. We see that again and again and again. And again in today's passage, a similar dynamic. And my hope is that as we see this dynamic repeated often and again this morning, that God will use this, that he'll use this passage even today, that he'll use this way of pointing you at God and pointing you at his promises and calling you to obey, that he will use this to grab you and build in you trust and obedience to him. It's my hope for this morning. If we look at chapter 4, verses 44, to chapter 5, verse 7, and turning to the first commandment. I'm going to read that passage. I'm going to read through chapter 5, 5 to start with. Then I'm going to pass back through as usual and, and comment on some of the details. And I'm also going to make some comments in general about how we should be thinking about the law and especially the Ten Commandments. So take a little bit of a, of a detour there briefly. I'll tell you when we get to that point. Let me read the passage. Deuteronomy 4, 44, first of all through 5, 5. 4, 44. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. 
who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. Verses 44 to 49 are an extended setup for what's following the main body of this book. Chapters 5 through 26 are obviously the, the heart of the book. This is the law that's coming that Moses set before the people. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules spoken to them when they came out of Egypt. And it's serving as a reminder to the reader that this is a treaty. This, this essentially is a treaty document, a covenant made after God had reached into Egypt and claimed this people for himself. After they were his people, he then gave them this law and made this treaty. In this case, it's reaffirmed. Obviously, this isn't the first time that he gave it. That first time was at Mount Horeb 38 years before. So it's a reaffirmation of this treaty, this covenant. You read through the Bible, it actually happened several times where they reaffirm in successive generations. It applies to this generation and the next one after it and to the generation after that and on and on. And you get that point of the successive generations each coming under this law, particularly in the verses that begin chapter 5. Made even more clear there. He's speaking in verse 2. Moses says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And then he goes on to say, Not with our fathers did he make this covenant, but with us, all those who are alive here today. And talks about what happened there. I spoke face to face with them, etc. Recounts all those events. But of course, if you think about this, this is technically inaccurate. Not quite accurate. A fact which is, is so obvious that Moses is not making a mistake here, trying to pull a fast one on them. It, it's obviously inaccurate because he's, he's trying to make a point. When he says, not with our fathers did he make this covenant, well, obviously, yes, he did make this covenant with our fathers. They were the ones who were there 38 years ago. They were the ones he was speaking to. And then when he goes on to emphasize, with us he made it, those of us who are alive here today, well, think this through. Everybody who was a fighting age back then is dead the only people who were alive back then were teenagers under 20 years of age. They're the only people who were still alive. So some were teenagers, but a whole bunch of people that Moses is talking to right now weren't even born 38 years ago. So when he's saying he made it with us, he spoke to us face to face, he's trying to make a particular point. Here's the point he's trying to make. Don't be confused to think that God made a deal with our fathers that doesn't hold for us. It is with you, you yourself, as if you yourself stood there and heard it. And next generation, same thing. It is with you. Next generation, same thing, with you. This is a covenant that God made with you, which perfectly fits how these things always worked. Any deal that's made with between powers applies down after the first men who signed the treaty, after they're dead, it's not like the treaty goes away. It continues on to the generations. Same point he's making. This is with you personally. So listen. This is God's commandment, statutes, rules that I speak in your hearing today and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So Moses is about to give them again. It's the heart of this book. But notice this, and here's where I'm going to take a little side, side track here. 
this is there's something important here that we understand so as to help us to sort through chapters 5 through 26. We're going to spend a long time in the center of this book, lots of laws and statutes and rules and whatnot. And to help us sort through that, we need to realize something. Not everything that's in these next 22 chapters is all standing on equal footing and to be applied all equally in the same way. There are differences. Let's think about some of the differences. First, we're alerted to some of the differences between some of the things that God is going to command and the statutes he's going to give by the very structure of the book and how it parallels one of these ancient treaties. I've talked about this a lot, but remember this. The ancient treaty structure always had the historical backdrop and then a very brief stipulation of the basic law that this new great king, when he acquired this people for himself, he gave a brief stipulation so that you could remember it. Here's the deal about how we're going to relate. And then after that, there'd be a whole bunch of details. It would be like law A. And law A's application to this, and if you're a farmer, it applies to your crops here, and you have to give this in, in grain here, and if you have oats, this. And If you're not a farmer, this stuff doesn't directly apply to you, but law A still holds. If you're a fisherman, you've got to think, what about law A is expressed here in the farming statements that applies now to my fishing business? You've got to think that through. This holds. All the details at any given moment may not apply to your particular circumstance. That's the structure of these treaties in the past. But beyond just structures of the treaties, God himself indicates to us that there's a difference in what he's about to say here. There's a difference between the Ten Commandments and the things that follow. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. Several things in that verse. So peel back there a page and look at that. He, God, this is Deuteronomy 4.13, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, literally, literally in Hebrew, it's the Ten Words. He commanded you the, the covenant which you were to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone, verse 14, And the Lord commanded me, that is Moses, at that time, to teach you the statutes and the rules that you might do them. Out of the fire of burning Mount Horeb, put yourself there, out of the fire of the burning mountain, God's voice, God personally spoke the ten words to the people. And then he personally wrote it on tablets of stone so that it would last. It's permanent. It's abiding. One copy of the Ten Commandments for you to keep, one copy of the Ten Commandments for me to keep. As a witness between us as to what the deal is. And it's in rock, so that you won't ever forget it. I speak that with my mouth personally to you. And then Moses can fill in all the details. Verse 14. See the difference there? The rest of the stuff comes out of Moses' mouth and is not written on stone. There's a separation there. There's a distinction. The Ten Commandments are abiding and permanent. Fleshed out in all the details. Now we still have to think them through as to how they apply to us in our particular situation. But it gets a little complex. It's not quite as clear-cut as the Ten Commandments written in rock for us to remember. 
Now the subject, the whole subject I'm touching on just a little bit here is, is very broad and complex. And to be honest and say that there are different Bible-believing Christians who disagree on a whole bunch of details on this subject. But in the end, and if you want to talk more about this later, we, we certainly can, but it's way too detailed to get into right now. In the end, I think it's pretty clear that any idea or theory that dismisses the law in its totality as if it runs contrary to the New Testament is missing something. Misunderstanding the Old Testament, misunderstanding the New Covenant in which God would write the law on our hearts, misunderstands Jesus when he said, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, and not a bit of this thing is going to pass away until it's all done. Misunderstands Paul in Romans 3 when he's talking about salvation by faith alone. And he says, do we then by this faith annul the law? By no means. By faith we uphold the law. Or in Romans 10 when he talks about how the problem is not with the law. The problem is with how people pursued the law as if it was by works. Instead of through faith in the Christ who provides righteousness. We cannot throw out the law. And in particularly, the Ten Commandments must ring for us. We must hear them in everything, every day of life. Because we are the people of God. Not to become the people of God. There's a huge difference in those two statements. And if you misunderstand them, you're a heretic and you're not saved. We do not, there are people who teach you can walk out the door and find people who teach that you must keep the Ten Commandments to become one of God's people, either by itself or as part of a whole bunch of other things you must do to become one of God's people. That is false. He gave the law to his people that he had already claimed for himself and said, this now is how you walk after me in this law. Because you're mine, not to become mine. We need to get that very straight. Belief, the heart, is what the law was after just as much as the New Testament. We've seen it a bunch in Deuteronomy already. We'll see it again today. As we turn to the introduction of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, His expression of Himself. It is still holy, just, good, and spiritual, like Paul taught in Romans 7. Hear it today by faith, Learn to uphold it, keep it, do it, and be faithful to it by faith. Let me read then Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. He said, this is the Lord himself personally speaking at Horeb, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to make two observations. One from verse 6, which is the introduction, the heading of the Ten Commandments, and then one from verse 7, which is the first commandment. <coughs> Let me begin with the first observation. It's a statement in verse 6, but I'm going to turn it into an exhortation to catch what God's intention is in this. So here's how I'm going to express the, the first observation I'm going to make. Behold the Lord, the God of your salvation. Behold. I use that word a lot, but what I, what I mean by it is not just glance at or look at, 
gaze at. Behold the Lord your God, the God of your salvation. This comes from verse 6, the foundation of the whole Ten Commandments. He says, look at me. Behold me. I am the Lord your God and I have done something to show you. I've done something that establishes some remarkable truths about me and about me in relationship to you. I am the Lord who brought you out of bondage. I delivered you from slavery. Before he commands anything, before he commands a single thing, he sets himself up on center stage and says, look, look at me. He is the Lord, the great I am. That's what his name means. You see it written there in all capital letters. It comes from, in the Hebrew, from the present tense of the word to be. He is the Lord, the I am. In the present tense, always. He introduced himself to Moses. I am the Lord. He said that is, I am the I am. Always being one. The always present one. The one who in the foundations of the world were laid already was there preparing to do the laying. He already simply was because he always is and always will be with no beginning, always existing in eternity past, never changing, never growing, never modified or improved, Never worried, threatened, or afraid. Never learning or becoming aware of something. He has always known all things and has always been everywhere. Always. There is no time ever that he wasn't, or that he came into being, or that he improved and became something greater. It's a false thought. He is the I am. And so he holds the whole world in his hands because he spoke it into existence, sustains it for a while, and will one day roll it all up in a garment when he's finished. Don't overlook that. Every single atom in the creation does his bidding. Everything. He spoke to Moses out of a bush that was on fire and did not turn to ash because he didn't want it to. He rearranged the creation order in the ten plagues in Egypt. He turned water into blood. Not red water, blood. Think about that at the chemical level. He did it. He parted the Red Sea like a pharmacist parts pills and they walked through on dry land. Not mud, not puddles, dry land towered over his people for decades in a pillar of cloud and fire. He spoke to them out of a shaking, burning mountain that was not consumed. His authority over absolutely everything is magnificent, total in scope. He reigns supreme over everything, everywhere in perfect power, perfect, complete knowledge and wisdom. No one does anything anywhere on all of God's green earth that he has not always seen, known, and decreed that they would be permitted to do. He is the Lord, your God.
Christian. He's, of course, the God of everything everywhere. He's the only God there is. But the universal Godness of God is not the emphasis here. What the text is leaning on is the unique Godness. God's decision to become your God. And get this, it is a statement in the singular. It is not your God, it is your God. If you're a believer, put your name in there. I am the Lord Steve's God. I am the Lord Bill's God. I am the Lord Marilyn's God. It is incredibly personal. He is a God who is personal and intimate and near and willing and desiring to be known. Not just known about. All those things that I was talking about there. And I, I hope that the Spirit takes those things and causes your heart to sing about them. Because they are immense. But they are not knowledge on a shelf somewhere. It is for you. Personally. He is yours closer to you than any human relationship actually indwelling you if you are a believer. That is alarming and marvelous. What a blessing it is to have the Lord as your God. Verse 6 is laced with the grace of God. It's shot through with grace towards you if you belong to Him. He is your God. And in particular, He is the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery. He is the Lord, the God of your salvation. Don't miss that about Him. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of His splendid power and wisdom has been bent towards a particular end, the saving of His people out of bondage. All of that great power, if it were not joined to a tender heart of grace and love towards His people, would be caused to dread Him and not desire Him. Can you imagine standing before a God who holds everything like that in His hands and is angry with you? You would call out, as Isaiah says, and as the New Testament says, you would call out to the mountains, fall on me and hide me from the face of this one. But it is not the case because he has bent all of that power to deliver you, to save you by grace alone. I brought you out. I didn't meet you at the river after you came partway. I brought you out. I removed the bondage and I delivered you. Every single step of the way came about only by the hand of the Lord. He sets the prisoners free. It is a miraculous display of his attributes. We've seen this already in the book. It's going to come up again and again and again. It comes up throughout all of Israel's history because it is the constant lodestone that the Lord uses. You know, a lodestone is the magnetically attracting rock that pulls the magnet. It's the lodestone that he uses to pull his people. It's the definitive proof. Look! I'm the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Why would I be after you to get you? I'm not. I birthed you through so, so much travail. Have I not shown that I am for you? So believe me when I tell you you can't do. Trust. It's the grace of God 
the chief piece of evidence that he brings up, because he's trying to do something in their hearts first before he commands a single thing. What's he trying to do? Nothing so powerfully inclines the hearts of God's people as seeing him in his majesty acting to deliver them. And that's what he puts on line one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And Christian, even more so for us, he has delivered us from a greater bondage than just Egypt. He's delivered us at the cross. That's the context through which we now have to look back at the commandments. A great God who is a deliverer. Evidence for us especially in the cross. We look at that and we say, speak, I am your servant. What do you have for me? Captured by it. Drawn. It's the same kind of emotion, the same kind of internal attitude that a a parent, especially a first-time parent, experiences when they look at their newborn baby. If you're a parent, you've probably experienced this sort of thing. You go through periods of being simply mesmerized by this little kid who hasn't done a thing for you other than cost you a lot of time, money, and pain. (laughs) But you're mesmerized by him. You you guys who are teenagers and are currently clashing with your parents, there was a time, (laughs) even you who are boys, there was a time when even your dad looked at you and thought, oh my word. I would do anything for that little person. Why? I have no real idea. (laughs) But I would for certain. You watch their little chests heave up and down as they breathe. Why does that move you? Who knows? Their nostrils flare and you see perhaps a little baby acne and it's cute, actually. (laughs) It is. It's true. I went through that myself, believe it or not. You, you look at this, at this little baby and you would just do anything for this little one. That's the kind of attitude that God's attempting to, constantly attempting to, to generate in us. I look at you and in wonder and in awe, I would do anything for you. Now the difference is when you ask the parent about why the baby, you have no idea really. But God says, I'm going to do one better than that. I'm going to give you really good reasons to. Found in verse 6, expanded on throughout all of the texts of the Bible, which is where you should go to find them. Don't go just to your own mind, you go to your Bible-informed mind. The reasons that he gives are my nature, and my deliverance, and the surety of my future deliverance. That's why you should be mesmerized by me. When that attitude rises up in us, As God, by His Spirit, works it through the Word, revealing Himself from the Scriptures, revealing Himself and His salvation, as that rises up in you, you are changed on the inside. And your attitudes change on the inside. And you come to this place where when Jesus will say to you, if you love me, I do, Lord. I am mesmerized by you. What next? If you love me, obey my commandments. What are they? 
That gets us to the second observation. This is from verse 7, the first commandment. The Lord expects to be supreme over all things in your life. The Lord expects, requires, supremacy, preeminence, first place over every area of your thinking, every area of your loving, every area of your acting, every area of your speaking, over everything. Let's be sure we understand the command. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And, and literally it says, no other gods before my face. No other gods in my presence. In, in the world of that day, multiple gods was the norm. All kinds of societies had multiple gods. The place they came from, Egypt, the place they were going to, lots of gods. They would have gods of different geographic areas. They would have gods of other spheres of life and existence, like fertility, both human and animal and land, actually. Fertility. And then uh, weather, all kinds of different gods. And to make life work, you had to get the proper mixture. So on your little altar, you'd set up the god of this local valley where you live. And then you would... Uh, combine into it a, a cup of the god of fertility so the land would be fertile. And then just the right time, a little pinch of the, of the god of sun and a sprinkle of the goddess of rain, and poof, you have crops. That's how it works. And if you don't get crops, you messed up somehow the concoction. And God wipes all of that off the table and says, no, if you're going to set up me as God, if you're going to be my people, which you are, there's only one way this is going to work, me alone only. No other God before me, which obviously does not mean, however, if you go into the other room where I'm not, you can have all kinds of other gods there because that wouldn't be a God before my face, that would be a God behind my back, and I'm cool with that. Obviously, he does not mean that. I'm the one God of your life, period. That's it. There is no second. This is the first commandment because it is a clarion call to the thing that is of first importance, the worship of the Lord only. This is what all of our lives need to be about. As I said, all of our thinking and speaking and acting, it's what all of our ministry has to be about. If we preach and teach and advise and counsel and witness from some other basis towards some other end about how life's going to work out and how we can help you get here and there and, and improve this and that and miss this, we've broken the first commandment, even in our attempt to witness. I'm not saying we can't talk about those other things, but we have to be first and foremost with God at the center of everything. I think the concept's pretty clear. I'm not sure how many of us realize though, the absolute centrality of the concept. The question in all of your life is, in all of your life, the question is, what do you do with the Lord? Where do you place Him as you're putting all the pieces of life together? Life is about fundamentally getting God right. 
in getting yourself right in relation to him now and therefore then forever. And when that happens, he's honored as he should be. You're transformed from the inside out. Your tastes and perspectives change, and you then experience the joy and the hope and the peace that comes from walking with God through his, through his world. Here's what I mean. Put yourself in a disagreement with your spouse or with your parents or with a friend, perhaps. Put yourself in a disagreement that has uh, not quite yet become an argument. But the other person has done you wrong, and so it could be. You know, there's some tension here in the air. And the issue at hand is not, first and foremost, the issue at hand is not, I need to be patient. I need to speak only kind words that build up, not those that tear down. I should resist anger. I should listen before speaking. I should focus on loving and serving this person. I should allow for the possibility that I have been misunderstood or that I have misunderstood. I should assume the best. Those things are not the first issue. Now, they're all true. They're all wise. Many of them are commandments right out of the Scripture. But they're not the first issue. You already know all those things. You know, in fact, let's be honest, most of the non-Christian world knows all those things. Those things are not so unique and, and of deep insight that nobody thought of them until they were revealed in the Bible. You already know that stuff. The reason that you don't go to them, that I don't go to them, is because I didn't get God right. Follow this. The issue that is of supreme importance as the disagreement teeters on the edge of becoming a sinful argument, the issue is, are you going to get God right and yourself and all the other people right in order, in relationship to one another? And if you do, all that other stuff's going to fall into place and come to pass. If the Lord your God who has delivered you out of bondage and who expects to occupy the place of supremacy, first place, if he's filling your windshield as you're moving through life, I use that expression a lot, here's what I mean by that. Think of you're driving through in a car and all that you see in the windshield is the Lord. I think of coming around on 215, on the bottom of 215 as you're coming towards church here eastbound, the Wasatch Front is right there. You cannot miss it. If what's filling the windshield of your life is the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, He will control your heart. If He's in the first chair, who isn't? You're not, nor are they, nor is anything else. And you, you will say, Speak, Lord, what is your commandment to me? Listen before you speak. Speak only kind words that are helpful for building others up. You might have misunderstood or been misunderstood. All that will fall into place if you get God right and have no other gods before him. The first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then and only then, love your neighbor as yourself. Get God right. Another example. You're in the doctor's office waiting for a report. And you're tense about it because 
whatever he or she walks in in just a moment and tells you is going to have a large amount of impact on the rest of your life. Some of us are, are there right now. And anxiety is present with you, what do you know? And it may come to your mind, you may remember, fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed. It's from Isaiah 41, it's also from a great hymn. From either source, it might come to your mind. But if you run right away to the fear not, be not dismayed, you'll miss it and you'll fail. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am the Lord your God who helps you, etc. Who's the I? The Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. He has to be first. And the fact that He is the Lord who holds all the atoms of all the creation, including all the ones in your body, in His hands, is the reason that then secondarily you can fear not and entrust all of your cares to Him knowing that he cares for you. I heard a a really famous pastor um, who had just gone through cancer treatment speaking about the outcome of all the cancer treatment. And he said, well, they tell me that with the the type of cancer I had, the type of treatment I had, and what the tests are showing right now, that I've got basically a 95% chance of, of being okay. Which is irrelevant, he continued on to say is entirely irrelevant. The statistics do not hold my life in their hands. I'm not rolling the dice, nor is God. And if He is in the first chair, if He's reigning over this area of my life, I realize that whether I am, using His words again, whether I be in the 95% or the 5% is both equally possible, and I'm in the very same place, either, either one. It doesn't matter. If the doctor walks in and says, well, you've got a 5% chance of living, then 95% chance you'll be dead next month. I'm in still the same place that I was. Exactly the same place. In his hands. And whichever category he decides to place me in, whether it be 1 and 99, 99 and 1, 100 and 0, the numbers are irrelevant. They are only a report of what he has done in the past. Now, I'm not saying that we should ignore statistics, and if you're looking at treatment, you know, this one gives you a higher percentage that you should you know, say it's all irrelevant. Take your doctor's advice, listen. This is not medical counsel. But it is scriptural, spiritual counsel. If the Lord is in the first chair in your life, because of that, for I am with you, fear not, be not dismayed. The Lord expects to be supreme over all things in your life. That is a command, and it is the greatest message of hope that you can imagine. You see in those two situations that it is the greatest message of hope that you can imagine, which makes it a real head-scratcher as to why we never seem to consistently follow this. You've known this first commandment before, but we still struggle with it and fail in it. 
how far short we fall, this daily and hourly, it's perplexing. Sometimes he's in first chair in my life. You know, 9.15 on Tuesday morning, he's in the first chair filling my windshield. And by 9.45, he's not even in the building. I didn't just move him down to second chair over to the den. I lost him. That's perplexing, but it happens to me. I'm guessing to you. It happens to you, of course. You look at that, and, and something in me at least wants to say, Ugh. who can rescue me from this body of death? This thing I keep going through, where I put you back, I'm amazed, I'm mesmerized, and then I've forgotten. Who can fix that problem? And it needs to be fixed in two ways. One, the constant demoting needs to be fixed. And two, the sin needs to be fixed and dealt with. Because the first commandment is first because it is first. And breaking the first commandment is of greatest then, greatest dread. Should be of greatest dread on us. The prime thing, the first thing that came out of the mouth of God, I say, mm, no thanks, not today. That's a problem for all of us. And if you're not a believer here today, it's a problem for you too. Yes, this passage is specifically addressing the people of God. But God does not have two standards, one by which he judges his people and one by which he judges the rest of the world. He means to be supreme over everything, everywhere, and he will be one way or the other. So you need to reckon with this. If you're not a believer, in every area of your life, in all of your thinking and speaking and acting and doing and loving, he must occupy first place, and he doesn't. And so you're guilty, like I am, before him. Who can rescue me from this? And we need look no further than the law itself and the sacrifices provided there. The blood of the lamb slain to take care of sin. Again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. I sin I pour blood on it to cover my sin. And I sin again and I pour more blood on it. And I sin again and I pour more blood on it. And I break the commandment again at 9.45 and again at 10.03 and I pour more blood on it. Is there not going to be a time when this will be done, when there will be blood poured once and for all that will remove sin? That's why the law is pointing towards Christ, the end of the law. Because there has to be an end, a goal. And yes, there is. I mean, bless God there is. He has provided a lamb, finally, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is a place where you can go to find blood to cover over your sin. A life paid in exchange for your life. Jesus. That's what happened at the cross. He died to pay for the sin of breaking, amongst other things, the first commandment. And if you trust him, he'll wipe your sin away. Only if you trust him. He will deliver you out of bondage and become the Lord your God. Christian, that's what's happened for you. You should bless God for that. 
But I want to particularly put a little emphasis on the, the second thing that happened at the cross, not just the removing of the guilt, but the fixing of the problem that I constantly want to demote him out of first chair. How does he fix that? Well, the Old Testament talks about the new covenant that's coming by saying he will write this law on your heart. He will give you his spirit to move you to follow his decrees. Particularly the first one. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.